Thank you, Pastor Tad. Good morning again, everybody. If you have any fifth graders and younger, they can now go to Gospel Project. Everybody else will be this morning together in the book of Matthew again, in the last chapter this time, Matthew 28. encourage you to grab a Bible and turn there. If you don't have one, there should be a Bible underneath the seat in front of you. Feel free to take that home if you don't have one of your own. We're in a series of messages now that last about six weeks in which we're looking at the book of Matthew and specifically asking Jesus what he says about the church. And so there's multiple places in this biography of Jesus's life called Matthew where Jesus taught something in relationship to what we are to be or to do as a church. And so we're considering those uh, together these weeks. Uh, By way of review, I thought we'd look at what we've considered just briefly. Uh, In our first message, we looked together at Matthew 5, 6, and 7. This is by far the most famous sermon that's ever been given, not mine, but Jesus's. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus collectively taught that the church is made up of citizens of the king's kingdom. That's not language we use often, but there's a king, his name is Jesus, He's building a kingdom, which is made up of all of his people, and the people in it he thinks of as citizens. And we are made righteous in this kingdom by Jesus and learning to live under his good rule. If you're new to church and you're wanting to know what are the people of God supposed to look like, those would be three great chapters to read in order to get an answer to that question. Last week, we looked together at Matthew 16, so we jumped about halfway through the book, and we saw that the church consists of and is built upon those who make a right confession of faith. That the way into the church is by coming to recognize who Jesus is and submitting your life to him. Today we're going to skip, obviously, a whole bunch of stuff again, about the same amount, and move together and look at the last chapter in this book. We come to what's no doubt the the most famous passage most likely in the book of Matthew, and perhaps uh, in the top five most well-known of the whole Bible. It's called the Great Commission. Now, perhaps you're wondering if in my old age I'm becoming a bit erratic. Why are we jumping around so much? I don't need any affirmation if you do feel that way. Why jump, though, from the middle of the book all the way uh, to the end? Well, it's because what we looked at last week in Matthew 16 is very much the same topic as Matthew 28. The two are, in fact, interrelated. We don't really understand the one correctly without also coupling it with the other. And so we want to put those two together today. In Matthew 16, we see Jesus before his death, burial, and resurrection, talking about what his people would be like. And then in Matthew 28, after his death, burial, and resurrection, we see him describing what his people ought to be doing. And in that way, the two are very much the same. Another way we could say that is in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where we get a portrait of what the people of God look like. In Matthew 16, we get an answer to the question, what is the church? But in Matthew 28 we get the answer to the question, 
how is it that people are then added to the church? Inherent in Matthew 16 and Matthew 28, and as we'll see in a couple of weeks in Matthew 18, is a topic we don't want to talk about. It's the issue of authority. Many of us are largely suspicious of authority. I wonder, when you hear the word authority, what do you think of? And if we could put on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 is authority's horrible, 10 is authority is always right, where would you fall? Probably at least for the Americans in the room, particularly the younger you are, you're going to be more towards that one, two, or three. Andy, I thought you were raising your hand with something you wanted to say. <clears throat> Do you have something you'd like to say? No. Your <laughs> wife is shaking her head for you as well. <clears throat> Why are we suspicious of authority? Well, one reason is because we've seen it so badly abused. But that's not the primary reason. Perhaps the primary reason we are anti-authority is because we want to be our own authorities. But in the scriptures, we find that God says authority rightly exercised is a good gift of God designed for our own flourishing and that we, in fact, are not designed to be our own authorities. That, for example, civil authorities are given to us, it says in the book of Romans, for our protection, to punish those who do evil, to protect those who do good. There are spiritual authorities as well. For example, last week we saw in Matthew 16 this weird, strange language of the keys of the kingdom that turns out to be not all that weird. Most of you have keys that you use to lock and unlock your car or to lock and unlock your house. This is designed to keep the right people in and the wrong people out. The keys of the kingdom, Jesus says, have been given to his church. They're designed to do the exact same thing. People who've confessed Jesus to be the Christ, the door is open to them. People who reject Jesus as the Christ, the door is closed to them. And so church, as we proclaim the gospel, and as we do that work of listening for people's confessions, we're exercising an authority that's not invested in me, but rather in us as the people of God at Church on Mill. Every church has that responsibility. Now, Matthew 28, we'll see this authority exercised in a slightly different way. This authority in Matthew 28 is the basis for the work that the church is to do of joyfully, lovingly, passionately telling more and more people about who Jesus is. In all these passages, I want you to consider that perhaps your own gut reaction to authority is not in line with what God designs as best for you. In the opening verses of Matthew 28, which we won't read, I want to just describe quickly for you, we find Jesus has come back from the dead, but not just in, by way of resuscitation. 
There are other people in the Bible who died and Jesus brought them back to life. But those people all died again. Jesus was not resuscitated. He was resurrected, meaning he came back with a new creation body, never to die again. King Jesus died at the hands of Roman executioners on Friday. And as he was placed in that tomb, all his followers believed everything Jesus said turned out to be a sham. All the disciples were devastated. Because Jesus said, I'm going to build a kingdom and I'll be on that throne forever. I'm bringing God's good rule and reign and it will be for all people everywhere. I have all power and authority. And through their ears in the first century as they wanted Rome to be overthrown, they heard Jesus to be saying, Rome will be gone. I'll sit on my throne physically and all people will want to be like the Israelites. But as Jesus lay in that tomb, the cold hard fact was that Jesus' own body had become cold and hard. The one they believed in as the Christ was now nothing more than a corpse. It looked like everything Jesus said was a lie. But then Matthew 28 came. Sunday came. And Jesus rose again. Jesus came back by his own power, by his own authority. The grave couldn't hold him, as we sing together today. And before Jesus returned to the Father in heaven, he gave his followers their job description. He said, in essence, church, here's what you're to be and to do. And that's where we come to verses 16 through 18. Armstrong, Lay, is going to come read for us. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Thanks, brother. In this brilliant passage that if you've sat through a worship service a few times, you've probably heard, Jesus teaches that the church exists to make disciples of all people. And what I want to do this morning primarily is spend our time fleshing that out with you from verses 18, 19, and 20. But it would be remiss not to comment just for a moment on verse 17. If you look at it, you see that in this passage, Jesus has already appeared to his disciples prior to verse 17. So, in fact, Jesus had spent multiple weeks making appearances between his resurrection and when he would leave. And so this isn't the first time the disciples had seen Jesus. 
post-resurrection. They had, in fact, heard him teach. They'd seen him show up unannounced to tell, him good, tell them good news. Some of them had touched him. They'd had a conversation with him. And so they knew that he was resurrected. And notice that it says they worshipped him. Friends, human beings don't rightly worship each other. We're, we're peers. We're not made to worship each other. But there's not anybody else who's been resurrected. Only Jesus. And so the worship of Jesus is right because in the resurrection he has shown his divine power. But it's not just that they worshiped him. There's something else. Something else that's easy to skip over. And I want to encourage you not to do that. Three little words that are rather surprising. But some doubted. But some doubted. The Bible is shockingly honest. Friends, we are often told today that the gospel writers, after the death of Jesus, got together and colluded, made up the story of the resurrection in order that they could then form a group of people based on a lie. If that was the narrative that was true, then that would mean Matthew had to set out to write his story understanding it's not true. In other words, he had to write in such a way that he's willfully, maliciously deceiving people. But if that were true, why would he have included that detail? Why would he say, Jesus was resurrected? And again, if he were trying to deceptively say, follow Jesus, then certainly those three words would not be there. But the Bible doesn't describe a made-up story. It describes in actuality what happened. Jesus was resurrected. Jesus showed himself to people. Some worshipped, but some doubted. I don't know about you, but I find that enormously helpful. If the Bible were historically inaccurate and intentionally deceptive, we would not know that some who stood there on Jesus' last day doubted Jesus himself. In some of your translations, you may find the word uncertain, that they were uncertain, or that they hesitated. And isn't that understandable? There are reindeer on the roof in the middle of September. This uncertainty or hesitation about Jesus is certainly understandable. Friend, if you have questions or doubts or hesitations about Jesus, realize you're in good company. And I don't mean the company in the room. I mean the company in the Scriptures. People who saw Jesus with their own eyes heard him teach with their own ears. Some of them still hesitated when he said he has authority over heaven and earth. 
Now, we have something they didn't have. We have almost 2,000 years of church history. You see, in this day, there was no church, and Jesus was telling a few ragtag group of bunch of people, uh, my church is going to reach the whole world. It's going to be for all people. You're going to have authority and power unlike anyone else ever has as a group to share the gospel and invite people to be my disciples. And it will be for all people. They couldn't look ahead and see what we see. And yet even today, there are some in the room this morning who have doubts. Don't ignore your doubts. Don't stuff them and pretend they're not there. Talk to God about them. Do you know God can handle you expressing the doubts he already knows you have? You can tell him, God, if you're real, if Jesus is the king, if I ought to live for him, if the Bible is true, you're going to have to convince me because I am not yet convinced. God can handle that kind of praying. That is not inauthentic. That is wise. And not only would I encourage you to pray, but talk to other people about that. Find another Christian who could tell you more about their own experience, who could read the Bible with you. Find people who know other religions and ask you to tell them about them. Consider all the options set before you. The message of the gospel can stand on its own two feet. Christ can handle any doubt that you might have. Today it's still true. Some in this room worship and some doubt. It's okay to doubt. Just don't stay there. Do the work of trying to work through that doubt. Friends, the presence of some doubt doesn't mean the absence of all faith. So seek to grow in the faith that's there. There's a lot more that we could say there, but the main topic addressed in this passage is the purpose of the church. So I want us to move on to that point. These verses, 18, 19, and 20, clearly say that the church exists to make disciples among all people. I want to consider with you this morning in our uh, remaining 25 minutes or so, four different elements of this great commission. First, let's look at what the mission itself is, the mission of making disciples. Second, let's consider what methods we're supposed to use. You see, Jesus hasn't just described the outcome he wants, but the strategy of getting there. Third, let's consider what the basis of this work is. And finally, whether or not we should have confidence in this work. All four of these things are addressed in these few verses. Look at verse 19 with me, if you would, and we'll see the mission that we've been given. It says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Brothers and sisters, we've been given the greatest privilege that anyone could ever have. The greatest job description on earth. The most important organizational delegation that any group could ever have. And that's the opportunity to tell people about Jesus and invite them 
to come to Christ. You'll notice there that Jesus says the church is for all nations. Christianity is the message that's open to everyone, irrespective of background or ethnicity. All people can come to Christ through Christ. The Greek word that is used in this text for disciple is the word methetes. Now that word isn't familiar with it, to us. But the concept behind that word is. In fact, you've been living that concept out this week. And so has every other person you've seen. Because everywhere we look, there is discipling going on. Literally everywhere. A disciple is a learner or a follower. A disciple is somebody who's learning to take on a certain way of life that's been modeled by somebody else. Now, can't you see with that definition how prevalent being a disciple is? There are disciples of college professors. There are disciples of sports teams. There are disciples of artists. There are disciples of musicians. There are disciples of designers. There are disciples of the popular kids at school. There are disciples of businesses and brands and writers and hobbies and cooks. There are disciples of everything. Everyone is seeking to be the disciple of somebody else. Whether you recognize it or not, this is intrinsic in what it means to be a human being. We are modeling our lives after something or someone else. And therein, we are the recipients of others discipling us. This is why things like ads are so powerfully effective. They're communicating to us, if you buy this product, you will have this kind of life. And if it didn't work, companies wouldn't be spending millions of millions of dollars on it. This is what discipling is. A disciple isn't somebody that has kind of nominal adherence to somebody else. No, it's somebody who's given their life over to becoming like someone else. Church on Mill, as Christians, we are people who've said, we want to take on Jesus' way of life. Not, we want Jesus to do stuff for us when we need him. Not, we want to go to heaven when we die through Jesus, but make no change in who we obey today. Not, Privately, I'm going to hug Jesus and love Jesus and thank God for Jesus, but publicly, I'm never going to mention him. Friends, we are disciples, meaning publicly, we want to take on Jesus' way of life and share him with others. We are people of the gospel. In our Wednesday night classes we do in this fall and spring semester, uh, are classes called Disciple Makers, in which we're trying to help each other learn how to do this. Last Wednesday night, in the first book we read in the first semester, we covered half of a book called uh, What is the Gospel? And the gospel is summarized in this book using four simple words. Several of you have been through it. Let's see if you remember. Do you know what the first 
summary of the gospel is. God, right. Second? You remember the first, but not the second. People, Christ, response. This, those four simple words are a great way to remember the gospel. There is a God. He's the creator. He's all-powerful. He's good. He's full of mercy. He's just. As our creator, he is to be obeyed. There's people. People are made in the image of God, meaning there's things about us and things we do that are meant to represent God's rule and reign on earth. Our creativity, our work, our relationships, these are things made in the image of God. And yet, that image of God has been marred by our own sin. And so we need help. Christ, Christ came, God himself became a man, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, rose again in victory, so that through him we can now have life again. Response, the way the gospel is applied to you is not simply by hearing it. It's not by being born into a family that believes it. It's not by coming to church. It's by confessing with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believing in your heart, God raised him from the dead. Then you're saved. That's the response. You have five fingers, most of you. That's four things. You can remember it, right? God, people, Christ, response. Really helpful way to remember the essential message of the gospel. What is the church for? The church is here to know those four things, to show them in how we live together, to share them with people who have yet to hear. Uh, for most of my life, as I heard this passage taught and read it myself, I heard it sort of as uh, the individual Christian mandate. Now, not the individual mandate, not Obamacare, but the individual Christian mandate is how I heard it. Meaning, Chuck, as you go through life, whatever you do, wherever you go, you are to be sharing Jesus, making disciples. Perhaps you've heard it taught that way. Now, it's not less than that, meaning it includes that. But that most certainly is not all of it. You see, when the disciples heard Jesus say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, go therefore and make disciples, what did they understand him to be saying? Now, we can't go back there and ask them, but we can, in fact, know what they thought because we know what they did. After Jesus spoke these words, he returned to the Father. Roughly 40 days later, Peter stood in the city of Jerusalem and gave a sermon, and a whole bunch of people responded. The first church was formed, the first church in Jerusalem. And then, have you ever been playing cards or something with a friend and they've had a bunch of candy out on the ground, out on the table, and then when they weren't looking, you smack the table real hard so the candy flew everywhere? Am I the only person that does things like that? So, let's say it's Skittles. You smack your hand and the Skittles scatter. God allowed persecution to strike 
the city of Jerusalem, and the disciples scattered. And as they scattered, what did they do? They started churches. Who started churches? Who started churches? And fast forward roughly 1,860 years later, 1,960 years later, here's Church on Mill. Friends, the disciples heard Jesus to be saying, share the gospel, and then as people respond, gather them into churches. And then as those churches grow and develop, start more churches. That's what the Great Commission means because that's what the disciples did. If you want to read more about that, look in your Bible at the book of Acts. It's not all that long. You could read it in a day or two this week if you gave an hour or two to that task. Churches committed to the mission of making disciples will be full of members who look for opportunities in everyday life to share Christ. They will also be Churches serious about helping other churches. Churches not with blinders on, only concerned with nickels and noses in their own church. But rather churches immensely concerned that more churches would be started in more places. And dying churches locally would be helped, resuscitated, given the shock treatment, life support. There will be churches committed to training up people to send them out. Churches happy to look around and see empty seats because there's room for more people to come and be sent elsewhere. Churches that send away their best people to help places that need it more. This is why we do things like have seminary classes here at Church on Mill. Uh, last Thursday, that room right over there, It's full of 16 people representing nine different churches, most of whom are not yet in ministry, learning what the Scriptures say about what it means to be a church. Most of that we will never see the benefit of, but that's not the point. Sitting right here, Phil and Julie Hoshiwara, who are planning to, Lord willing, by this time next year be in Thailand, doing the work of learning language in order to start churches there. This is what church does. We love people. We share Christ, whether near or far. The Great Commission calls us to all of these things. Now, how specifically are we to do that work? Well, Jesus has prescribed that. Just like if you go to the doctor and the doctor says, this is wrong, They write you the prescription. On the bottle it says, take it this many days, this much, this many times. If you mess that up, what's going to happen? Depends on what the medicine is. Maybe rather serious. But the doctor has given us the prescription and it should be followed as prescribed. Our king has given us the prescription for how to do this work. And we must follow it. And what he says, frankly, is rather simple. I don't mean easy, but simple. Look again with me at verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. How? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son 
and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. By the way, this is for free. This is, verse 19, one of the clearest references in the entire Bible to the Trinity, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three persons but one God. Now, how do we see that in that verse? Well, the word name is in the singular. We don't baptize people in the names of three different gods. We baptize them one time in the name of one God who's known as the Father, Son, and Spirit. Isn't that cool? Now, how do we do the work of the Great Commission? Well, we do it with the ING words. Do you see those there? I know it's a holiday weekend. You would just want to check off your brain. But those words, those participles, tell us how the church does the work of making disciples, by baptizing and by teaching. So here's how this works. Whether it's you individually sharing the gospel with a friend or in a gospel community, a neighbor begins coming and hears the gospel there or here on a Sunday morning or somebody reads something on our website. However that happens, a person hears the gospel and responds with faith and repentance. What's the very next thing that ought to happen? Well, they should be baptized. They should be baptized. Now, I have been a Christian a long, long time. I've baptized hundreds of people, and I still think it's weird. There is nowhere else you go that everyone looks at you while there's one person who just gets dunked underwater, and then everybody claps. That's strange, but it's beautiful. Here's what baptism is. Physical baptism is nothing more than a picture of something called spiritual baptism. Now, this is often confusing when you read the Bible because just like there's one word for church and it can mean all Christians everywhere or it can mean this, a local church, there's one word for baptism and it can mean being spiritually put into Christ or physically being dunked underwater can be either one. How do you know the difference? It's by context. So spiritual baptism is what happens when you accept Christ, when you respond to the gospel message. And this is rather odd too. But when you confess Christ, somehow God takes you spiritually back to Jesus on the cross. And as he dies, who dies too? You. You. And as he rises again three days later, who rises too? Shouldn't be hard now. You. This is why Jesus' death becomes yours, because you died too. This is why Jesus' life becomes yours, because you rose again in him. If you want to learn more about that, look at the first 11 verses of the book of Romans. It's explicitly talking about what happens when somebody's placed into Christ. Now, water baptism is nothing more than a physical representation of what's already happened to you spiritually. You can't see someone going back into Christ spiritually and rising again. And God wants us to, to taste, to feel, to observe, 
to enjoy spiritual realities. And so he's given us tactile people something to see in order that we could experience the truth of what's happened to us. That's what baptism is. And so whenever there's somebody who's ready, who's confessed Christ, we fill up the tank. The next day we scoop the bugs out and then we baptize you. There's nothing magical in the water. It's just tempy tap. It doesn't save. It doesn't do anything other than demonstrate the fact that Christ has saved you. Whenever I talk with somebody about this who is unfamiliar with baptism, the first thing I say is, it's okay that you feel like it's weird. I do too. The second thing I say is, baptism is like a wedding ring. You see, when a husband and a wife stand and they hold hands and they make vows to each other, what's the next thing that happens? Well, it's customary, at least in American culture, for the bride to put a ring on the guy and for the guy to put a ring on the gal. And what do those rings do? They don't make you married. You're no more married than when you made the vows. They symbolize the commitments being made. They form a tactile, visible picture of an internal reality that's now true. They show to everybody else, you can't touch this. This one's taken. That's what they're for. Friends, water baptism is the exact same thing. It's saying, I have made vows with Jesus, and Jesus has made vows with me. I am his forever. And I now want to tell all of you, I belong to Christ. It's a beautiful thing, as weird as it is. If you have followed Christ, if you've made that confession with Peter, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, and you haven't been baptized after that conversion, then, friend, we'd love the opportunity to participate in that weird activity with you. The church would love the opportunity to see you put on that wedding ring. It's one of the very best things you can invite your non-Christian friends and family to come see because they'll hear you share how Christ has changed you. They'll see the joy in the family of God. So how do we do the work of making disciples? Well, we share the gospel, and thereby people respond, and then we baptize them. This is what the first church did, Acts 2, 41. So those who received his word, that's Peter's sermon I talked about a few minutes ago, were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added to what? Added to the church. Added to the church in Jerusalem. This is what baptism does. You put on the ring, you join the family. It's a graphic and wonderful picture of something intangible that's so hard to really get our minds around. Placed into Christ, rising again with him. Baptism is a one-time thing, and if you've never done it, I'd love the opportunity afterwards to visit with you about that happening in your life soon. The other thing Jesus tells us to do, the other I-N-G word, is teaching. This teaching is to be ongoing. It's to be what is normative every day of 
the disciple's life. The main activity of the church is the teaching function. Whether that's teaching like this, or whether that's one-on-one, you getting together, talking with each other about what you're learning. Or when one of us is in sin, and we don't see it, it's one of us coming to the other and saying, stop it, stupid. Not like that, but saying, hey, could it be that you've gotten caught up in something harmful to you? How could I help you? It's getting together to read the scriptures. It's gathering together, not just on Sunday morning, but together in GCs. It's coming at 9.30 to a connection class, learning together about different topics that God addresses. It's reading books that help us to understand the book, the Bible. Friends, the primary work the church does is baptizing and teaching. Teaching informally and teaching formally. This is what we do. Church, we have a universal mission to make disciples. And we have a prescription for how to do it, baptizing and teaching. And notice that this isn't just given to Peter. It's given to all the disciples. This is normal Christianity. Sure, we will all have different aptitudes, different gifts, different personalities, but in some way, shape, or form, brother, sister, God wants to use you to spread the message of Christ and to help people who already know him grow up. Now, in our remaining couple of moments, I'd love, by way of closing, to share with you the other two pieces of this passage. The first one is the basis for this work. Jesus started with all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. This may come as a surprise to you, but at least in this part of the country, in this country, Christianity is not very popular. Many people don't appreciate hearing that there is a truth and that that truth has teeth and that we're not actually kings and queens, but there is a king. And so the idea of sharing Christ in a culture hostile to Christianity is rather intimidating. It can produce fear. but we need not fear. Because the basis for this work that we do is not our own intelligence, our own strength, our own wit, our own smartness. It's the authority of Jesus Christ. We go because He comes. We share because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. We go not in our power, but in His, trusting the results to Him. And so even if we share 50 times and nobody responds, it might be the 51st time that somebody does. And that's up to God, not up to us. And so we go under His leadership with His representative authority. And that basis for the work matches so well with the confidence that we have in this work. 
Verse 20, the latter half says, And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Friends, those of you who know the Bible, what happened after Jesus said that? He left. I find that rather comical. I'm with you always. See you later. Matthew didn't include that detail, perhaps because he didn't want us to end his book with laughter. But the other gospel writers do. Jesus leaves. How in the world is he not a liar then? How did this message get off the ground if the last thing he said is, I'm always with you? Well, it's because Jesus was talking about a spiritual presence, not a physical presence. He was saying, church, as you go and do the work of sharing the gospel, baptizing people, teaching them to observe, gathering together, planting more churches, helping struggling churches, sending missionaries around the globe, as you do all of that, you're going to need more than just one physical body Jesus. You're going to need the power of Jesus spread out among a whole bunch of people. The only way for that to happen is for Jesus to return to the Father and then to send his Spirit, who would be not in one place at one time, but who would live within all of God's people forever. So he is with us by means of the Spirit. Church, we do this work with the presence and power of Jesus. It might not always feel like it, but that doesn't make it not true. You see, Church on Mill, we witness to Jesus by the withness of Jesus. He is with us. Let's remember that as we seek this week to be faithful to this great commission. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that those in the room who have not yet responded to the gospel message, would do so today. I pray for others who have trusted Christ but been hesitant for one reason or another to be baptized, that, God, they would come and let a leader or friend know and that we could get that done. God, I pray for others who are following you or seeking to follow you but haven't made a commitment to a church. Or others who have been here a while and understand that you're now desiring to send them somewhere else to help them. God, please show them that you're with them for these hard tasks. And I pray in particular for my brothers and sisters who call this Church on Mill their home. That God, this week we would be faithful to each opportunity you give us to make disciples. In Jesus' name.